What are the costs and benefits for a pathogen of becoming resistant to antimicrobials? How can this lead to the emergence of antimicrobial resistant pathogens? How may modelling and genomics help inform the use of antibiotics in a way that reduces or prevents the spread of antimicrobial resistance? We explore these questions and more in this episode of Spider Presents. This is Spider Presents, a series produced by the Spider Podcast Hub. My name is Laura Guzman. And mine is Ed Hill. Today we welcome our Spider Group member, Professor Xavier Didelo, a professor of statistical epidemiology and genomics in the School of Life Sciences and the Department of Statistics at the University of Warwick. Xavier also leads the Health Protection Research Unit in Genomics and Enabling Data, which is funded by the National Institute of Health Research for 2020-2025. This project is a partnership between the University of Warwick and the UK Health Security Agency in collaboration with the Centre for Genomic Pathogen Surveillance and the University of Cambridge. In this episode, we'll be discussing the research article Estimating the Fitness Cost and Benefit of Antimicrobial Resistance from Pathogen Genomic Data. The article was published in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface in June 2023. Welcome to Spider Presents, Xavier. We're happy to have you here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great you could join us today. Antimicrobial resistance is a major threat to health and is responsible for an increased risk of death and prolonged hospital stays. The paper considers fitness of pathogen variants. Could you explain to the listeners what fitness means in this context? So, uh, so firstly, on the, on the problem of resistance, I mean, I think it's, it's a problem that many people nowadays are, are, are aware of, but just to give you an idea of how big uh, a problem it is, it's been estimated recently that uh, resistance of bacterial pathogen costs uh, something in the area of uh, 1 million deaths per, uh, per year. And if nothing is done, it's estimated that by 2050, this could grow uh, to 10 million deaths per year. So it's a really big, big growing issue, a, a major uh, threat to public health, really. And so w- what we've been studying in this, in, the, in this paper is the fitness uh, of the resistant lineage. So w- w- what that means is that we try to compare how, uh, what, how much of an advantage or disadvantage the resistant lineages have compared to uh, uh, equivalent bacteria that are not resistant. So, so we know that, of course, if an antibiotic is used a lot, then uh, being resistant, you can see from the point of view of the bacteria, is going to be a good thing because uh, they're going to, the bacteria is going to be able to escape treatment and not die when the antibiotic is used. Uh, so there's a clear fitness advantage to, uh, to being resistant from the point of view of the bacteria. Uh, but there's also a fitness cost uh, uh, in many cases, and we see that from the fact that if we stop using those antibiotics, uh, after a little while, we see the resistance level go down little by little, and, and that's because the resistance forms of the bacteria actually have a, a, a little disadvantage compared to susceptible ones, such that if the antibiotic is not useful and it's not useful to be resistant, then uh, the resistance sort of goes away uh, little by little. That's brilliant. Thank you for that overview. So as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen there's been an increase in public awareness of both mammascal modeling, data analysis, and also pathogen genomics, and its usage continues to increase. Um, so for this particular research article, what were the knowledge gaps at the time that you were hoping to help address? Yeah. So, so the pathogen genomics is, is, is a sort of main type of data that we use in this study. And it's very, very useful for us here because looking at the genomes provides, in fact, a, a window into the past evolution of the pathogens in a way that 
uh, we can't observe uh, uh, otherwise. So it's a little bit different for COVID, of course, because from the moment the COVID crisis started, uh, we there were a lot of scientists working on it and a lot of scientists doing surveillance and, and looking at the dynamics of um, of, of the COVID epidemics with different variants uh, appearing, etc. But it's not so much so for for uh, uh, bacterial pathogens up until like the 1990s or before that surveillance uh, um, uh, of, of resistance in, in bacterial pathogen was not so uh, uh, well, well so through, especially in some uh, in some countries. So, but but having genomes allows us to look at the past. Uh, uh, even if the genomes are collected only today, looking at those genomes and looking at what mutations have happened in those genomes in the past allows us to um, estimate what are the past dynamics of the different uh, uh, lineages of bacteria that we look at. So you look at pathogen evolution for resistant and non-resistant. That's right. So, so in this study, we compare the genomes of uh, bacterial uh, uh, forms that are resistant to a pathogen, to, to, to an antibiotic. We look at many genomes uh, from... Uh, uh, bacteria that are resistant, many genomes from bacteria that are susceptible, and we compare their past evolution through uh, uh, the, the, by looking at what mutations have. We see nowadays we can say something about their past evolution, and we compare their past evolution in a way that tells us if the resistant at one point was, uh, if maybe the resistant lineages were uh, were growing more than the susceptible ones, or, or vice versa. And we can correlate that with what we know about when the antibiotic was being used. And so what we see, of course, is that when the antibiotic was being used a lot, the resistant uh, forms were uh, growing more compared to susceptibles. Uh, and then vice versa, when some antibiotics were sort of stopped being used so much because, uh, because they were becoming less and less efficient, then we see that the resistant uh, lineages uh, um, sort of started to disappear. But, so that allows us not only to establish this link between uh, consumption of antibiotic and uh, uh, evolution of resistance, which is a, a link that, of course, we knew happened. But but we can uh, quantify exactly how strong is this link. We can quantify exactly what are the fitness costs and benefits of um, resistance in a way that now allows us to make predictions about how much anti of an antibiotic we can use without taking the risk of uh, more resistance arising. Were there novel methods? or enhancements to existing methods require, so you could attempt to do this estimation of fitness, cost, and benefit of antimicrobial resistance from this pathogen genomic data? Y yes, absolutely. So, so we had to build a, a whole new model uh, for um, what we expect uh, the um, uh, dynamics of the resistant and susceptible um, uh, lineages to be. So that's a, a, an epidemiological uh, component of the, um, of the model. On top of that, we had to build... Uh, a phylogenomic uh, um, uh, component, which represents how the genomes are going to, uh, how the evolution of the genome is going to be affected by uh, the uh, epidemic dynamics. And, uh, and all of this we implemented into a new uh, piece of software that is able to infer the parameters of the model given what we observe uh, uh, as data, which in this case is the currently uh, the genome that we have uh, of the susceptible and the resistant forms of the uh, bacteria. That's really cool to hear about the, the new frameworks that are being brought online to tackle these problems. And another key contributor or key component of the analysis would be the data used. And so what were the key data sources that were required to conduct this analysis? Were there particular attributes that it had that made it well suited to this, to this research question? So in terms of data, the first thing we did was to use a lot of simulated data, a lot of data where we know exactly that the advantage was uh, X, 
And then we can test if our software is able to correctly reconstruct this advantage, say, of the, uh, of the resistance rate. So we did that a lot in order to prove that our algorithm uh, works. And then, of course, we wanted to apply that to, uh, to some real data sets. So we applied it to, uh, in this case, a data set of more than a thousand genomes of uh, Nesaya gonorrhea, which is uh, the bacteria that causes uh, gonorrhea. Uh, it's, it's a very nice data set, uh, uh, sampled over about 10 years um, from the United States, um, uh, uh, more than a thousand genomes. And, and we focused especially on those uh, um, lineages within that data set that were resistant or not to uh, an antibiotic called uh, ciprofloxacin that used to be uh, very uh, used very commonly against gonorrhea and is not so used anymore nowadays because uh, because there has been so much uh, increase in the resistance rate uh, against ciprofloxacin in gonorrhea. Hearing about the verification of the model through simulation has made me wonder about if we went back a decade, two decades, would, would this have been feasible? Is there a need for a lot of computational power to conduct this type of analysis? There is, yes. That's a very good point. So there's a sort of all of this, of course, is implemented in software. So even if the models uh, that we use could have been uh, perhaps uh, they're not that mathematically complicated, so perhaps they could have been sort of devised uh, 10 or 20 years ago. No one would have even done it because the models would not have been uh, applicable to. Uh, to data in the way that we do do it. So, so for that, we need some um, very efficient computational algorithms. So in this case, we use uh, an algorithm called an HMC, a Hamiltonian Monte Carlo method. So that didn't exist much before, about 10 years ago. And it's a very uh, uh, scalable uh, algorithm that allows us to handle very large amounts of data, like, like what we have here. And, and we also have to run our uh, software on some uh, some computer. That, that, that are sort of, uh, the cu current power of computers, of course, is much more than it was 10 or 20 years ago. So for that, that's the other reason why it would not have been possible uh, to do this type of analysis uh, uh, a decade ago. And this type of analysis you can use with now different pathogens data sets? Uh, absolutely. So of course, we, we, we looked at that example in gonorrhea, but really the model itself has nothing in it that is specific to gonorrhea. And uh, we very much hope that it will be uh, used by uh, uh, other researchers in the world to study uh, um, the dynamics of resistance of different uh, bacterial pathogens. There's a lot of different species of bacteria for which resistance is a, is a growing issue. And so we hope that our method will be applicable to, um, to, uh, to, to, to them and, and to different systems and will help us understand better what are the resistance uh, costs and um, benefits of resistance uh, uh, to, 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 to a, a whole range of uh, antibiotics for a whole range of bacteria. In that way, help us inform what is the best way to use the antibiotics that we have in a way that uh, uh, doesn't uh, uh, cause more resistance in the bacteria. Because, so we know that more and more antibiotics are um, becoming a threat of not working. Uh, we know it takes a long, long time to develop new antibiotics. So, of course, there's a call for new antibiotics to be, to, to be developed, but that takes a really long time from the moment of the initial research to the moment when the antibiotic can actually be used for clinical purposes. That takes a really, really long time. And, and there's, for that reason, over the past 10 years, there hasn't been that many new antibiotics being discovered and being brought to the clinic. So, really, uh, uh, the other side of the coin, if we can't develop more antibiotics, is to try to make sure that the ones we have, we use in a way that, uh, uh, that they can be used for the longer term. Uh, and that means using them uh, uh, with moderation or in different combinations in a way that the bacteria doesn't become resistant too quickly uh, to those antibiotics. What would you say are the key findings from this study? And were there any 
that were surprising to you? Yeah, yeah. So, on, so on, on the gonorrhea data set that we looked at, uh, um, uh, and the, the, the sort of key uh, um, finding was that we were able to estimate exactly uh, what is the fitness uh, benefit and the fitness uh, cost of resistance. And, and that allows us to estimate we could treat something like 10% of uh, gonorrhea infection with ciprofloxacin without causing a rise in uh, the rate of resistance of gonorrhea against ciprofloxacin. So even if it's that doesn't allow us to, we're not at all saying we should switch completely to this antibiotic. If we used it for even a small proportion, say 10%, it means there's no danger of that antibiotic, uh, of the resistance to that antibiotic becoming uh, increasing, but also it means it preserves the other antibiotics that are more commonly used at the moment, such as uh, azithromycin or, or, or cefriaxone, uh, uh, that are more commonly used and becoming a threat because they're being used so much, uh, becoming a threat of uh, uh, not being uh, effective anymore. Uh, perhaps the most surprising finding was that we actually applied um, the, the method to two different lineages of gonorrhea uh, that were resistant to uh, ciprofloxacin, and that they are two sort of really completely separate uh, lineages. And so we knew they were both resistant, but we would have expected perhaps that uh, they had become resistant in different way, and, and the, the parameters might be different. But what we found actually is that the fitness cost. Uh, and the fitness benefit of both lineages were exactly the same, or, or within the same intervals uh, of that we estimate. Uh, and that was a bit of a surprise because I, I would not necessarily have expected that to be the case. Yeah, it's always interesting to hear when you get the, you know, the unanticipated uh, finding arising from when conducting such scientific analyses. And so, yeah, so given that, are there particular implications of, say, such a finding? So, so the implication, as far as gonorrhea is concerned, is that we can treat. Uh, we, our suggestion is to treat up to 10% of infections of gonorrhea with ciprofloxacin, and we do that. We would suggest doing that at random, uh, uh, so that you know there are no sort of clusters of resistance arising. Uh, but 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 more broadly, really, uh, what we hope is that this algorithm will be used uh, for other systems of bacteria and other antibiotics to really map out what are the uh, fitness costs and uh, benefits of resistance for for a broad range of antibiotics and a broad range of uh, uh, pathogens. So tuberculosis, for example, is another bacteria that um, is increasingly becoming resistant to pretty much every form of antibiotics that we know. In fact, some uh, uh, strains of, of tuberculosis have even been described as totally resistant to any antibiotics that, that, that we know. So luckily, they are very, very rare at the moment. But uh, um, uh, and so tuberculosis is certainly one system where we would want to apply those, those methods. It is one of the sort of critical uh, uh, bacterial pathogen uh, uh, as far as resistance is concerned. Another good example that we previously worked on was uh, MRSA, so that's a methicillin-resistant form of Staphylococcus that caused a lot of trouble back uh, back in the 1990s, especially. It, it, it's, it's pretty much sort of gone away to some extent now, uh, but uh, uh, um, the MRSA uh, uh, crisis happened because there was so much beta-lactams being used uh, uh, at the time, and, and so that sort of created this uh, monster of, uh, uh, um, uh, of, of, of a pathogen. And, and it was only, uh, it, the only reason why it sort of went away is because people have been more careful in the way they use beta-lactams now. And so that's another good candidate for which we can really um, uh, evaluate what are the dynamics of resistance, what are the fitness costs and benefits, and, and, and conclude from that what exactly is the best way to uh, deploy the antibiotics that we have at our disposal. So this would mean you can run in real time this algorithm and it can guide you the proportions of for example antibiotics you can use 
In near real time, I would say. I mean, you, it's not an algorithm that you would want to run uh, completely in real time because the date, it's not like the, we're not going to learn something really new from day to day, but you, want to, you would want part to, to periodically, maybe every month or so, uh, update your uh, set of genome that you have available for, uh, for analysis and, and, and uh, track what are the sort of dynamics of resistance. Are there any new lineages arising at the moment that, that seem to be of, of concern, exactly as was done for COVID with a, a variance of concern? And what are their properties of resistance and what should we do about them uh, in terms of antibiotic stewardship? Looking ahead, what in your view are going to be the key challenges for pathogen genomics? as efforts are continuing to be made to mitigate the risk of antimicrobial resistance? And how may the Health Protection Research Unit in genomics and enabling data contribute to this research? So, so the main challenge that we have at the moment is in terms of making the most of the data. So, so, so the, the, the genomic itself, the, the process of sequencing uh, the genomes has made fantastic progress uh, uh, between 2000 and, and, and now with some really, really efficient methods of sequencing, really that can sort of very quickly and also very cheaply, uh, we, we, we can sequence uh, hundreds or thousands of genomes of bacteria and so get a really good uh, a genomic surveillance program going on. The, the real bottleneck is once you've got all this genomic data, what, what do you do with it? And so the, the mission of our uh, Health Protection Research Unit in genomics and enabling data is to develop that pipeline, so in partnership with UKHSA, especially one of the sort of main partners doing surveillance uh, in the UK uh, uh, on uh, resistance of uh, bacterial pathogens. We want to uh, develop the new methods of the, such as the one that we've talked about today, but also many other methods to uh, tackle some of the challenges around what do we do with data, how can we develop algorithms that are uh, powerful, that can scale to the large amounts of data that, that, that we have at our disposal, and that can um, inform the uh, control uh, policies of the future. Thinking like during the COVID-19 pandemic response, the, the different types of data stream that would become available, it's like primary healthcare, secondary healthcare, genomics, virology, um, from various different disciplines. And so it requiring a, a broad team to actually, to reasonably to interpret all these data sources and tra basically translate it for people in other disciplines so they could potentially go and use it in their own modeling work, et cetera. So I think this just very much like links into the fact a lot of the research being conducted is interdisciplinary in nature, and that's going to be a very important um, area in upcoming years. Th th that's very true. And I should add that genomics is not at all a replacement for traditional epidemiology. I mean, I think at some people, some people, uh, at, at some point, some people got really excited about genomics and thought this might sort of answer all the questions and we wouldn't need to sort of do any sort of standard epidemiology anymore. And that's not true because even with whole genomes of bacteria from, from cases, we, we're very often unable to say like something like who infected whom, trying to reconstruct a transmission tree or anything like that because uh, the, the rates of evolution of the, of the genomes are not uh, always sufficient to do that. So, so really where genomics really shines is as a complementary approach with the traditional epidemiological method, which means we have to work uh, uh, with... Um, uh, with partners who are epidemiologists, uh, public health scientists, uh, etc., et statisticians, computer scientists, etc., in order to sort of um, make the most of all the different strands of data that we have to really uh, inform uh, uh, control measures. I have one question regarding data. Is it now more available for multiple pathogens to do routine basis uh, genomics? It, it is, as there's more and more genomic data available. In a country like here in the UK, we have a lot of um, 
good genomic surveillance program uh, uh, in place. So uh, where it becomes a bit more challenging, and it's very relevant to resistance, in fact, is that, of course, uh, um, uh, what often happens is that resistant uh, pathogens uh, arise uh, maybe in Asia or in Africa, and of course those countries don't have such good surveillance programs. And so what we see here in the UK is only um, uh, the imports of those events, and to really understand how those uh, uh, new lineages arose, we would need good surveillance programs uh, um, in, in, in other countries as well, or, or throughout the world. Uh, uh, another sort of example of that is when pathogens actually come from uh, animal species, so then uh, suddenly there's a lot less data available if, um, on, uh, on, 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 on bacteria causing uh, disease in animals, and so that, that can create the same type of issue where we see the import of the resistance form or the variant forms of the, of the bacteria in humans here in the UK, but we know a lot less about exactly where did they arise, was it in an animal host, was it in a different country, etc. So yes, there's a lot of data available here from human infections, but a lot less here in animals and even a lot less uh, in other, from other countries. That's great to hear. Um, thank you very much for all the explanation you've given us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Very much looking forward to seeing the future work that's conducted. Oh yeah, there will be more, yeah. <laughs> Thank you all for listening and we hope you'll join us again next time for our next episode of Spider Presents.